Since it's been a while since we encountered Lincoln Ellsworth in the ice coffee narrative, a quick recap is in order. Mining magnate's son loved Wyatt Earp, Teddy Roosevelt and Roald Amundsen, picked up the cheque for the Dornier Wiles when Amundsen was skint and flew his self-loading ballast aboard the N24 in the unsuccessful attempt to cross the Arctic and his father died thinking his son had died in a stupid and dangerous foray. He funded the flight of the Norge and flew as navigator and I made air quotes there and formed the Polar Legion with Amundsen and Bird to give himself airs and wrote a really bad poem about Roald Amundsen on his death. Told you to be quick. Jeff Maynard's excellent book, Antarctica's Lost Aviator, recounts a period of rudderless depression in the wake of the Arctic expeditions in which Isaiah Bowman of the American Geographical Society and Vice President of the USA, Charles Dawes, concerned that their friend might suicide encouraged Ellsworth to get a new expedition moving to give him a sense of purpose. The first crossing of Antarctica remained as a potential goal and aviation appeared to hold the key to that goal, where ponies and dog sledges taken south to date hadn't cut the Antarctic mustard. Their efforts and encouragement came to naught because Ellsworth, already noted as only ever a little bit committed to the projects he funded, didn't see the mileage. He wanted notoriety, but he didn't want to put in the hard yards required to achieve anything notable. He funded, but didn't take part in, Wilkins' unsuccessful attempt to reach the North Pole by submarine, instead joining Hugo Eckner aboard the Graf Zeppelin as Arctic navigation expert for just 8,000 US dollars. Far cheaper than supporting Wilkins' submarine and far more glamorous and less likely headed for doom than Simon Lake's rusty tub, the Nautilus. The Zeppelin flight rekindled Ellsworth's energy for exploration. Bowman put Ellsworth in touch with Lars Christensen on the idea an expedition to cross Antarctica using an aircraft could use the Norvegia to head south, and perhaps Hjalmarisa Larsen or Lutzal Holm could serve as his pilot. Ellsworth considered this Ellsworth American-Norwegian Antarctic expedition, but the project never got moving because the whaling fleet stayed home in the 1931-32 Austral summer. The effects of the depression caused the whale oil glut, the Hector Whaling Company shut up shop at Deception Island and never opened shop there again, and Larson's ships wouldn't return to the Southern Ocean until they sold the oil already filling their holding tanks and tanker vessels. Instead, Ellsworth looked to Wilkins as the man through which his ambition to do something noteworthy might be realised. Wilkins was methodical, competent and broke, where Ellsworth was indolent, talentless and cashed up. Series stalwarts will see trouble ahead in the form of split leadership, but in the absence of a time machine and solutions to the paradoxes posed by time travel, we'll just have to watch, horrified, as two of the least well-matched personalities ever to shake hands go about their business in the 1930s. As Jeff Maynard mentioned in episode 86, Wilkins didn't owe Ellsworth money, but his personal morality didn't care about the legal side of such matters. Wilkins felt a debt to Ellsworth that wound up his clockwork and saw him push on until the project set before him was completed, leaving him free to have another go at submarine excursions below Arctic sea ice, which he knew was a winner of an idea. Ellsworth laid before Wilkins the task he wanted Wilkins to achieve for him and which Ellsworth wanted to receive all the credit for, the first crossing of Antarctica, by air, because sledging is for chumps. Wilkins' experience coupled with Ellsworth's effectively bottomless pockets, made planning the flight a simple matter of selecting the best people, the best equipment, and getting them on site and on time. Antarctica would take care of making it far more complicated, but the planning was simple. Wilkins chose the Bay of Wales in December for the latter requirements. The Bay of Wales offered reliable ship access by December, flat ice to act as a runway, 
and a straight line shot to Graham land over a large tract of as yet unseen ground. With aircraft design improving dramatically in the five years since the first flights over the Arctic, Wilkins thought the cross-continental flight could be made from the edge of the Ross Sea to the edge of the Weddell Sea and back again in a single 20-hour outing. Ellsworth, half-assed dilettante that he was, couldn't navigate well or fly a plane in spite of claiming training and experience in both skill sets, so Wilkins needed a pilot able to do both. Bernd Balkan, unable to raise funding for a proposed round-the-world flight, recently married, recently made a US citizen and recently employed to teach Amelia Earhart, to whom Lawrence M. Gould introduced him, instrument flying and setting her on her way across the Atlantic in a Lockheed Vega, met with Ellsworth on Wilkins' recommendation and agreed to fly Ellsworth across Antarctica for $800 US a month with a $15,000 bonus on completion of the crossing. Ellsworth, already familiar with Dornier flying boats and impressed by the developing use from catapult ships in Lufthansa's transatlantic services, enthused to Balkan about the advantages of using such a system to get an aircraft airborne without needing to get ashore, then recovering to the ship via hoist after landing on the sea near the mothership. Balkan, not relishing the prospect of having to make a water landing in spaces known for rapid ice closures, steered Ellsworth away from the idea of a catapult ship. Knowing the aviation industry as he did, he convinced Ellsworth to opt instead for a smaller, longer-range machine than Dornier Wiles, requiring fewer people to maintain and, crucially, featuring only a single engine. At the time, multi-engine airframe design focused on increasing the payload rather than offering engine-out safety, as soon became the design brief mandated by aviation safety bodies. Twin-engine or tri-motor aircraft that could reliably maintain height with one engine out of commission didn't exist yet, so it made sense to decrease the chances of a forced landing by decreasing the number of engines that could develop problems. US legislation mandating aircraft expected to carry passengers at night or over territory that didn't feature flatland suitable for safe use in forced landings had to be able to maintain height with one engine out of commission, came into force in 1934, ushering in the design era that gave rise to airframes such as the DC-3, slated to feature extensively in this series. Ellsworth gave Belkin carte blanche to purchase the right plane for the job. After his experience with the Fokker Universal in the Ross Sea, Belkin wanted a low-wing airframe. Aircraft with a wing up high and held at a high angle of attack when at rest couldn't help but try to fly in a strong wind, with similar results to that which still lie at the foot of the Edsel Ford Mountains. He figured a low-wing airframe could, with a little digging around the undercarriage, sit flush with the snow surface and weather the worst storm. Got a Gen 2 penguin just come out of the water, staring at me. No interview today. Oh well. Balkan teamed up with Jack Northrop, designer of the Lockheed Vega, Northrop's colleague Don Berlin, and Dr. Theodore von Kármán at the Caltech to design a state-of-the-art long-distance airframe. Since leaving wooden construction methods behind with the Vega, Jack Northrop's aircraft went from strength to strength, as did the wings he built. His signature design motif of outer wings bolted to a really strong multi-spar centre section integrated into the fuselage formed the basis of what became the Northrop Gamma that Balkan purchased on Ellsworth's behalf and carried on to serve in such iconic airframes as the Douglas DC-3 and the Douglas Dauntless dive bomber. Northrop built a small number of Gammas, each fitted to the specific needs of the owner and readily accepted and applied Balkan's specifications to customise the Polar Star to the exacting demands of high latitudes flying. Art Deco design was, to some extent, influenced by aviation, the increasingly sleek lines of aircraft showing up in buildings, furniture and vases from that design mode. Modern aircraft, when bereft of drag-inducing external fuel tanks or instrument packages or munitions, still look Art Deco, but the gamma is, to my eye the ultimate confluence of accidental and deliberate art deco-ness. It needed to be sleek and streamlined, 
It needed to be polished bare metal. It didn't need that cool birdcage canopy over the tandem cockpits or the beautifully curved trousering over the main wheels. But hells does it look cool for those nods to the style at the time. Northrop Gammas looks like it flew out of the retro future of Buck Rogers or Futurama and stands as one of the most beautiful machines anyone ever made for any reason. Balkan selected a 500 horsepower Pratt & Whitney Wasp engine, a two-blade Hamilton standard variable pitch propeller and a particular system of fuel tanks, pumps and valves that he knew would perform well in the cold. He tweaked the design and mapped the fuel consumption curves in a vigorous flight test series in company with fellow Norwegian Chris Brathen, who also served under Bird at Little America, and whom Belkin signed on as Expedition Aero Engineer. When it was finished, Belkin estimated the Gamma 2B he and Northrop worked up for Ellsworth led its field by a clear five years in terms of innovations and efficiency. The 37,680 US dollars Ellsworth spent on the gleaming testament to advanced technology lay far beyond what any other expedition spent on a single airframe and engine to that time. Bird's former PR agent, Harry Bruno, came into the fold to handle press releases during the expedition and to organise public appearances should the expedition prove a success. While Ellsworth didn't need their money, he did want the publicity afforded by contracts with the New York Times, the National Geographic Society and the North American Newspaper Alliance that Harry Bruno negotiated. Taste the yellow journalism when I recount the New York Times writing up that the expedition quote, would not want for the sinews of war in the siege of the glacial continent. Unquote. I don't like eating sinews or war, so copy like that loses me along the intended PR path. Isaiah Bowman circulated a circular, translated into four languages, to publications worldwide, outlining how Ellsworth's flight, by applying the latest techniques in oblique and horizontal aerial photography, and a vertical camera automatically capturing images every 10 seconds, coupled with regular astronomical position fixes, would generate accurate maps from the transcontinental flight, cleverly putting the world on notice that America was in the south and making maps, even before the expedition got underway a sort of armchair territorial claim. Bowman's influence in the State Department saw Ellsworth issued with a formal proclamation to read and instructions on actions when claiming new territory on the behalf of the USA. The USA, as it still loudly professes to anyone who stands still long enough to listen, doesn't recognise territorial claims in Antarctica, but in the 1930s it was starting to take an increasing interest in making such claims itself. Best to be on the safe side in case other nations start making money down there, being the thinking, as far as I can pass it out. For their part, the British, wary of provoking the USA into making overt government-backed claims if they asked too many probing questions about how much the US government backed Ellsworth's efforts in the South, sent Ellsworth a message granting him permission to operate in the Ross Dependency and remarking on his not having applied for a New Zealand radio licence or permission to operate aircraft in New Zealand's airspace. But without a legal hook in amongst the vagueness, Ellsworth felt free to ignore the insinuation that he needed to ask New Zealand for anything. Looking to the other side of the continent, Ellsworth threw a cat among the State Department pigeons by applying to the Falkland Islands dependency for permission to operate in harbours among the South Shetland Islands and to operate his aircraft in their domain, explicitly recognising the dominion over the British slice of the pie in West Antarctica. The Governor of the Falkland Islands, Sir James O'Grady, Cabinet Maker, former Governor of Tasmania and Esperanto enthusiast, granted the requested permission. State Department bureaucrats carefully worded a letter to the British Foreign Office to make sure they knew Ellsworth's correspondence with the colonial governor, quote, cannot in any way be implied to have any bearing on the question as to what country or countries may validly claim ownership of or title to the various territories embraced within the term dependencies Unquote. Smug with how matters stood and unwilling to cede any of the accidental traction their South Atlantic cabinet maker come politician just gained them, the British Foreign Office didn't reply.
Wilkins looked to Norway for a ship, selecting a wooden-hulled herring fishing vessel, the Fanfjord. Featuring a large hold, enough canvas to work effectively as a sailing vessel, and a hot bulb engine, a two-stroke, low-compression diesel engine, easier to maintain than a true diesel, but less efficient due to the low cylinder compression. You need to hold a blowtorch to the head of one of these engines to get it to start, as they rely on the red-hot cylinder heads for fuel ignition, which is a clunky but reliable mechanism, and one I'd rather give a swerve on a ship, what with the blowtorch and flammable liquids confluence in a confined space. Still, with the large fuel bunkers, Wilkins estimated a maximum range of 11,000 nautical miles. He bought the Farnifjord for 15,000 US dollars and spent more of Ellsworth's money on a refit, a new hardwood and iron sheathing. Ellsworth ordered the ship renamed the Wyatt Earp to honour his favourite gunslinging lawman of the Oldie Westie. Wilkins engaged a high latitudes hardened Norwegian crew, headed by Captain Bard Holth. Recent graduate of the Norwegian Naval Academy, Magnus Olsen, sailed as first mate and reserve pilot. A Norwegian physician, Dr. Berg, joined as meteorologist. I've already covered Richard Bird's petulant whining about Ellsworth's intentions and Balkan and Brathson's involvement in the concurrent expedition, so I refer you to episode 87 if you need a recap. I will mention that it fair put the wind up bird that the Northrop Gamma represented such a technological leap forward over the airframes available to his own financially fraught operation. Ellsworth had money to burn, and for the first time, an Antarctic project was kicking off with the absolute best kit money could buy. Add to that Wilkins' mode of operating a small and flexible team very efficiently, and Bird's windiness was well warranted. I'll mention here that another little American resident, unwilling to travel in the Mayor of Antarctica's company again, Dr Dana Komen joined Wilkins, oops, I meant Ellsworth's, team as medico. Ellsworth's marriage two months prior to his departure south warrants some attention, and Jeff Maynard gave it exactly that in his book, but I'll keep things brief by mentioning that Lincoln Ellsworth was probably repressing homosexual tendencies. It's hard enough being gay in the present day, but in the manly man's USA, trademark, in the 1930s, any form of sex other than P and the V was illegal and likely to see a person ostracised by every facet of society that Ellsworth cared about. Mary Louise Ulmer, a fellow heir to an industrial fortune and half Lincoln's age when they met, served as Lincoln Ellsworth's beard for the rest of his life, but none of that 20 years sounds like it was especially fun or productive for her. Her pushy mother, likely a large lever in bringing the couple together in spite of indifference on Ellsworth's part and shyness on Mary Louise's, remained in her daughter's company for the rest of her life and much of the rest of Lincoln Ellsworth's. Everyone who sailed aboard the Wyatt Earp signed a contract stipulating they wouldn't publish anything relating to the expedition or grant interviews without Ellsworth's consent. Wilkins' contract required that he write articles for broadcast under Ellsworth's name during the expedition and that he stay out of the USA for two months after its completion. Howdy, hey. Sorry, don't no, an interruption. All part of the colour. Looking at your papers again, it looks hilarious. You're reading, reading to my socks. Where were we? contract made an exception, allowing him to return to the USA by a route separate from that used by Ellsworth in order that he could fly the Polar Star to Washington as Ellsworth felt confident the US Congressional Medal of Honor lay in the offing, as per Bird got perhaps not realising that that particular reward applied only to military personnel, and usually only arose from an act of valour when facing an enemy during a time of war. You got it? That's amazing. So I guess no lunch today. Oh, I skipped it. Um, It's not like I'm losing form. Um, To your Swedish... Engineering eye, is that sufficient steppage? Yeah, I like this little, we call it the tuscan. Tuscan? Tuscan, so that you don't slip back. Peterman Island, once again, late November 2019.
sitting in Port Circumcision waiting for my ride. Hooking back into Ellsworth. Bird only got the gong for achievements while operating as a civilian because he was still, technically, in the Navy and boasted some powerful political connections. Ellsworth, returning from several weeks stargazing in Death Valley, Reed, studiously avoiding marital bliss, rejoined Mary and her mother in New York and began the journey to New Zealand for the planned rendezvous with his, and I made air quotes there, expedition. I'll note here that it was only during such meanderings in Death Valley and the Grand Canyon that Lincoln Ellsworth came to think of moccasins as the ultimate form of footwear. He acknowledged that they wore out quickly, but he loved that they could get wet and return to almost dry after a wringing out. He's preferring the comfort of moosehide moccasins in a rubber overboot over the tried and tested high latitudes finesco and senegrass combination would later nearly cost him his footsies in Antarctica. Martha, how do you say finesco? Huh? Finesco, the deer, deer, deer hide boot. Finesco. Finesco. Yeah. Thank you. I've been pronouncing it wrong for six years. Finesco. Finesco. Yeah. It is Sami? Finesco, it's like Finnish shoes. Over the tried and tested high latitudes Finesco and Senegras combination would later nearly cost him his footsies in Antarctica. Loaded with two and a half years' worth of provisions, much of it donated by enthusiastic Norwegian supporters, and carrying the best cold-weather equipment and apparel Norway, Alaska and Canada could provide, the Wyatt Earp departed Bergen on the 29th of July, 1933. Balkan developed appendicitis during the transit down the Atlantic, requiring hospitalisation and an appendectomy in Cape Town, and the delay made Ellsworth pissing off the New Zealand dignitaries by refusing all attempts at entertaining the newlyweds to the point of sailing to Pago Pago to enjoy warmer weather, and Tetchy at the close proximity of a wife he held no interest in and little affection for, cabled his displeasure at being made to wait. Reaching Dunedin, Wilkins arranged fuel bunkering and received a string of telegrams from Ellsworth instructing him not to accept invitations to formal events or in any other way give the locals the impression that Wilkins was leading the expedition, while at the same time dithering indecisively over instructions because Wilkins was, in fact, leading the expedition. Wilkins' frustration over Ellsworth's insufferability likely wasn't improved by the imminent arrival of Bird with the all-singing, all-dancing circus that was the Bird Antarctic Expedition Part 2, all fake Virginian politeness once more. The local newspapers, of course, picked up the race angle that everyone involved denied vigorously and ran several nautical miles with it. Reminding me of Toby aboard the Francaise, the crew received a young pig from a New Zealand farmer. Magnus Olsen adopted the animal, making it a packing crate home labelled Miss Piggy's Cottage. The ship's cat demonstrated appropriate shipboard hygiene in the sawdust tray, and the pig followed suit likely saving its bacon from those crew members who otherwise had to clean the decks in the wake of its prior indiscretions. Like Toby before her, Miss Piggy became the focus of much shipboard affection. When Lincoln Ellsworth ordered her killed and butchered that he might enjoy some bacon, Olsen handed him a pistol and told him to do the hard part. Ellsworth demurred and Miss Piggy saw another sunrise. After departing Port Chalmers, the Wyatt Earp received a radiogram recounting Admiral Byrd's interview with the local press, in which he recounted magnanimously giving Ellsworth permission to operate in Antarctica, and Balkan permission to work with Ellsworth, the arrogant presumption inherent to such grandstanding nonsense justifiably annoying both men, who didn't seek Byrd's permission. The Wyatt Earp, designed for close shore and pack ice work in the north, rolled like a bastard on the southern ocean swells passing from healing 50 degrees to port through to healing 50 degrees to starboard and back again within four seconds. I'm keeping a sick bag from my positioning flight handy as I write about it. They met the pack at 63 degrees 30 minutes south, the furthest north in the Ross Sea recorded to that time. Antarctic whaling veteran Captain Holf spent three weeks dancing with the Ross Sea pack ice. The reinforced and steel-sheathed bows served well in battering open leads in thin sea ice, 
but the process of backing water and charging ahead saw the ship's gears wear down to the point Captain Holth couldn't access intermediate speeds between all stop and full ahead. Not quite crippled, but less than fully functional, the Wyatt Earp reached the Bay of Wales on the 7th of January 1934. As mentioned in episode 89, Balkan and Braten skied to the aerials protruding above the buried remnants of Little America and dug down to the Ford trimotor. I didn't mention that Balkan, while sitting in the Ford's cockpit, found and retrieved the pocket slide rule that pissed Bird off so much the last time it got a mention in the series, but he did. I also recounted that the radio reported the condition of Little America and the sea ice in Versimer Bay didn't please Bird, but will consent it regardless of how it was likely to be received, because that's what he said he'd do if he arrived on site first. The polar star emerged in pieces from the hold of the Wyatt Earp, tied alongside the sea ice. Attaching the outer wing sections to the centre section and fuselage took two days because the nature of Jack Northrop's strong wing design required hundreds of nuts and bolts along the entire perimeter of the butt joints and these couldn't be manipulated with gloves on. Balkan and Braten made two short... (laughs) Balkan and Braten made two short test flights to finesse the gamma's performance before Balkan took Ellsworth up for a half-hour flight. With fine weather forecast for the following day, Ellsworth felt his goal lay close at hand. Swell caused the ice edge by the ship to break up, so Balkan and Brighton taxied the gamma a mile from the margin. During the night, the carving part of the shelf behind Versamur broke the last sea ice up into a series of flows, moving against each other in the surge caused by the writhing of the newly freed icebergs and breaking up further with each passing minute. Magnus Olsen, on the ice at the time, recorded the event in the following alarming manner. Quote, Suddenly, from within the deep caverns far below the surface of the ice barrier, came ominous sounds like the tuning up of a mighty orchestra. It was as if the whole universe had begun to vibrate. For the same reason that during a phenomenon like the total eclipse of the sun, when birds and beasts are numbed into silence, this unexpected demoniac and mighty stridulation paralysed us into total immobility. We stood rooted to the spot, so great was the terror which engulfed us. As the ominous sound continued, it was as if a mammoth organ, hidden behind macrocephalic stalactites, began to play, accompanied by gigantic cymbal crashes. Before these terrifying blastings and crashings had subsided, I discovered that I was alone on an ice floe. Beside me was a cluster of oil drums which rolled backwards and forwards as the ice raft rocked violently. I looked in the direction where the plane had sat, waiting to take off, but there was no sign of it. End quote. I probably didn't need to quote Olsen quite as extensively as I did, but it's hard to pass up an opportunity to say stridulation, demoniac and macrocephalic stalactites all in one concentrated paragraph of second language literary awesomeness. Nine members of the expedition made their way across the tilting surfaces to the gamma. They found the airframe straddling a crack, its skis and their spattered struts wedged in between and crushed by the moving ice, and one wing bent out of true. Captain Holf worked the Wyatt Earp between the flows, trying to get close enough to the Polar Star to lift it back aboard without opening the crack beneath it to the point the aircraft sank into the waters of Versamur. Only able to manoeuvre to within 100 feet of the aircraft, the ship put out a cable and hauled the damaged machine across the sea ice surface and onto the deck, where even a casual observer could see it wouldn't be taking off any time soon. Some of the crew cried to see the project brought to such an unlucky and premature end. Wilkins broke out the champagne and bucked up their spirits with a stirring speech about making the most of circumstances and bending their backs towards the future. Wilkins later reflected that Balkan and Brighton likely could have made effective repairs given their skills and the tools and materials on hand, but that Balkan made the right decision in opting to spend more of Ellsworth's money and ensure everything was the factory spec instead of just good enough to get by. Wilkins, thinking ahead, led a sledging team across the broken ice and up the misery trail to depot 500 gallons of aviation fuel and a month of food at Little America. Bird gave his blessing via radio but I don't find mention of this food or fuel anywhere in accounts of Little America. Magnus Olsen, 19 at the start of his three years aboard the Wyatt Earp, 
held Sir Hubert in very high regard, and his account of the expedition records the tribulations of the fuel sledges in detail, remarking that the five Norwegians, half their leader's age of 47, the same age that saw Shackleton dead of a heart attack, and the same age I'll be by the time I publish this episode, but that's less relevant, had to ask the Australian to ease the pace he set on the lead rope as they struggled to keep up. Bird radioed an offer to let Ellsworth use his Fairchild or Fokker, but everyone on site knew this gesture didn't amount to much as the aircraft didn't have the range to do the job Ellsworth required. I think Bird was just making nice noises over the radio, so anyone listening in would think he was the best of chaps. And then the ship became stuck in the sea ice. The crew began applying dynamite, drilling down 10 feet to give the explosives the full three dimensions to work on, surrounding the ship with the resulting cracks and then laying a line of explody holes seaward and connecting the resulting cracks with handsaws. They kedged the ship into the man-made lead, but couldn't start the engine to aid the push to freedom because newly formed ice encased the propeller and rudder. In one of the coolest Norwegian things I've ever heard of, the ship's crew used an exothermic chemical reaction to free the propeller and rudder from their ice encasement. Hessian bags of carbide anodes and rock salt cathodes were lowered alongside the hull at the stern. Salt water bridged the gaps and the electrical potential of the chemicals in the bags released heat as the reaction got underway. Gentler than dynamite and more chemically cunning than a fox with a meth lab, the prop came free, the ERP's engine came to life and Captain Holf got them out of dodge. Once clear of the ice, the Wyatt Earp made all speed back to Dunedin, passing the Jakob Rupert without seeing it as Bird and co headed for the Bay of Wales. Once back in New Zealand, Ellsworth couldn't decide if he should get the Polar Star repaired and try again or quit. He dithered for two weeks before catching a ship to San Francisco. Mary Louise and her ever-present mother got him off to Switzerland and Lenzburg Castle before he could disappear into Death Valley or similar desultory adventures in the West. His strained relationship with Mary Louise received further pointless emotional denting when Ellsworth told his alleged beloved that he might stay in Antarctica. I love my wife dearly, and each time I head south, it's a wrench. The time away puts pressure on our bond, and nothing other than flowery assertions that I'll miss her and return at the earliest opportunity will do. And that's after almost 20 years together. I hope I never test the limit of my wife's patience with my meandering career, but I don't doubt I would have shot past the relationship event horizon if I ever told her, you know, I think I might go somewhere far away and not come back for an indeterminate period. I don't know if Mary Louise was trapped in the situation by social convention, her mother, or lawyers managing the inheritances, or perhaps happy with an absentee dingbat husband, but she put up with Ellsworth's nonsense. Back in New Zealand, Wilkins tried to interpret the depressed and depressing missives from Lensburg as instructions but couldn't tell if Ellsworth was pulling the pin or likely to return. He got the Polar Star and the US-based contingent, headed back to the US aboard a Texaco ship and put the Wyatt Earp into the dry dock at Port Chalmers for repairs. The Norwegian contingent, still on Ellsworth's payroll and embraced heartily by New Zealand's expat Norwegian community, took it easy through the Austral winter. Wilkins toured the South Island showing his films and lecturing to supplement his income. Jeff Maynard gave me a copy of one of the handbills Wilkins got printed up to promote these events and it really brought home to me Wilkins' autodidact approach to matters Bird employed a team of people to handle for him. A simple flyer with some text and photographs worked up on a Gestetna and posted around the towns he visited. Wilkins seemed to only ever work with other people when he absolutely couldn't avoid it and that resonates strongly with me. By April, that Wilkins should prepare for another attempt at the Continental Crossing. Wilkins responded that the ship would lie ready for Ellsworth to join it, but headed to England to see if he could raise Royal Navy interest in loaning him a more capable submarine than his Nautilus to fulfil his under-ice ambitions in the north. Rebuffed by the RN, Wilkins faced the choice of heading south with Ellsworth or west to join his wife Suzanne after a two-year absence. Never an especially close couple, he opted to head south. He felt his personal debt to Ellsworth paid, but with his marriage geared more to his wife getting a social leg up from his knighthood than to love, he didn't have much else on his dance card. 
At least pairing up with Ellsworth carried a paycheck. With Balkan and Brighton returning to New Zealand with the repaired Polar Star, now with optional seaplane float gear in case ice runways didn't readily come to light, and Ellsworth on his way via Hawaii, San's wife and mother-in-law, Wilkins contemplated a new solution to the equation of how to cross Antarctica. With Bird and Co in residence at Little America, it made sense to make the flight a one-way affair, starting from the other side of the continent. He knew Deception Island could provide an ice runway if the ship arrived before the breakout. If the ice wouldn't serve, they could try using the float landing gear instead of the skis. After a long period of literary silence, Suzanne wrote to Wilkins to announce her pregnancy to the husband she didn't see for two years. Wilkins, pragmatist, advised her that he would read all the material Dr Komen could make available to him on pregnancy and subject the father of the child to a pop quiz regarding ailments pertinent to the situation to ensure his cuckolder was up to spec when the expedition returned from the south. The Wyatt Earp departed Dunedin and set course for Deception Island on the 19th of September 1934. After a taxing transit featuring many gales and blizzards, the worst of which struck as they drew near their destination, they arrived at Whalers Bay on the 14th of October. As mentioned earlier, the Hectoria Whaling Company ceased operating there in the time since Wilkins' previous visit with the Lockheed Vega. With the bay ice already broken out of the volcanic caldera, Whalers Bay seemed abandoned on two fronts. Balkan went ashore and skied around the shoreline until he found a stretch of flat snow that he deemed long enough to get the Gamma airborne with a full load of fuel. Five days of crook weather precluded unloading, but once the Wyatt Earp came alongside the jetty, things moved quickly. The Gamma received its wings, empennage and propeller. On the 29th of October, Bill Haynes radioed word of clear weather at Little America, but snow squalls kept the Polar Star grounded. Ellsworth cracked the sulks and Wilkins encouraged Brighton to fire up the Gamma's engine to lift the mood. Whether it was this instruction coming unexpectedly or a lapse in Brighton's mode that caused the error, he never cleared the engine cylinders of the oil he'd filled them with to prevent corrosion during the sea voyage. The immense compression problem posed by turning the engine over in this state resolved itself in the form of a bent connecting rod, the associated knuckle pin shearing and one of the remnant parts scoring the wall of the cylinder. The prop made a half turn before the wasp let loose a resounding bang of the kind you never want to hear from an engine of any type. Braten checked the spares boxes. Knuckle pins featured on the manifest but didn't show in the crates. Wilkins radioed Pratt and Whitney to request a replacement knuckle pin and a spare be sent to Magdalenas in southern Chile for collection by the Wyatt Earp. Ellsworth, Balkan, Brighton, Dr. Komen and meteorologist Dr. Jürgen Holmbo set themselves up in the whaling station accommodations as the Wyatt Earp headed north. While living ashore, they made much use of the local game, enjoying penguin egg omelettes, but reporting boiled penguin eggs as being tough as rubber and tasting strongly of fish. Balkan and Brighton dismantled the Pratt & Whitney wasp in readiness for the arrival of the critical parts. Ellsworth, traipsing about the landscape under the guise of studying the bird life, almost died in a crevasse, and history might have played out very differently for several members of the expedition had that actually happened. Arriving in Magdalenas on the 9th of November, Wilkins hired a car and drove 12 hours to collect the Pratt & Whitney parts from Rio de Galagos in Argentina, then drove back again, his 24 hours at the wheel short-circuiting the sort of delays South America can impose on an operation when you really need something delivered in a hurry, even today. He got the Wyatt Earp back to Deception Island in a 16-day turnaround. While Brighton got to work on the 10-day task of rebuilding the Gamma's engine, Balkan began petitioning for a third aviator on the flight, specifically Wilkins. Balkan's uncle, Leif Dietrichsen, 
travelled in Ellsworth Company during Amundsen's unsuccessful Dornier flight in the Arctic and saw firsthand how little the American knew about navigation. Reservations about Ellsworth's ability saw Dietrichsen quit the Norwegian contingent aboard the Norge for the successful flight to the North Pole. Hjalmar Risa Larsen taking the lion's share of both the piloting and the navigation in the absence of Dietrichsen and the presence of Ellsworth. Balkan found Dietrichsen's assessment of Ellsworth validated during his two weeks at Deception Island and felt that without a competent navigator aboard the Gamma, the flight constituted a foolhardy project. Ellsworth, unwilling to sacrifice fuel or survival gear to make space and payload available for a third aviator, pressed that Balkan back down, which he did with his customary bad grace when dealing with obtuse stupidity. Balkan might have thought himself safe from this half-assed Ahab, as by this point, the delays caused by the engine trouble saw the snow on the shores of Whalers Bay melt to the point the Gamma couldn't take off on its ski gear. I don't know if the float gear was considered and nixed for Deception Island based on Ben Eilson's experiences with suicidal seabirds, but they didn't fit the floats or attempt the water takeoff. The Polar Star went back aboard the ship with its wings, empennage and propeller still attached. Ellsworth still wanted to make the flight and Wilkins wanted a shot of Ellsworth and saw getting him airborne over Antarctica as the only path toward that goal. The Wyatt Earp crossed the Bransfield Strait and began a transit down the western side of the peninsula, hoping to find a good runway on Adelaide Island, but ice blocked their progress in the Bismarck Strait. Wilkins, knowing from previous experience that no suitable shore site on that side of the peninsula offered the necessary length of runway, directed Captain Holf to take them to Antarctic Sound to see what the Weddell Sea offered that year. They sailed south past Snow Hill Island to that season's edge of the fast ice, but summer heating left the surface pitted and unsuitable for use as a runway. Putting ashore on Snow Hill Island, Wilkins found the ideal runway just a mile from the coast, buoying Ellsworth's flagging spirits and inversely denting Balkan's sang The flight looked back on the cards. Balkan taxied the Polar Star up a glacier tongue to the runway, and the crew began lugging fuel drums and equipment in its wake. While his team did the hard yards and Balkan got the Polar Star airborne for a test flight, Ellsworth, Ellsworth snowshoed over to the Nordenwald hut, the first person to visit it since the Swedes departed 30 years earlier. He collected some fossils, ate some chocolate he found there, pin in that for later, and stole some equipment and clothing to donate to the American Museum of Natural History, where they would serve the world much better than anyone who might turn up there short on equipment and clothing, because he is Lincoln Richie Rich Ellsworth, and being cold and hungry is for poor suckers, don't you know? Returning to the Wyatt Earp, he found Balkan kicking up about a third aviator again, making no bones about his lack of confidence in the billionaires navigating. Wilkins and Ellsworth tried to talk Balkan back from his stance, but Balkan held his ground long enough that a storm blew in and nixed any chance of getting the transcontinental flight underway. Already late in the season, the chances of getting the necessary window in the weather decreased. Bill Haynes at Little America 2, estimating the odds at 100 to 1. Everyone lived aboard the Wyatt Earp for the next two weeks, at which point Holmbo declared the weather good enough to get moving. Balkan finally conceded he wasn't going to get Wilkins on board for the flight, and could see Ellsworth wasn't going to quit until he'd crossed Antarctica or died trying. Balkan would have to rely on his own navigation using a set of detailed notes prepared by Wilkins, giving timed headings and speeds, and accounting for the magnetic variation along the Great Circle route the flight needed to follow. Balkan knew Ellsworth wouldn't see them right on that front, and he didn't seem at all phased at the prospect of dying in the big unknown on the charts. I think Ellsworth would have been just as happy to fly off over the horizon and never be seen again as at a successful crossing, but blithely accepting a high likelihood of a horrible death is the sort of decision civilians can only ethically make on their own behalf. Even Richard Byrd thought twice about sending anyone other than himself to their highly likely death. The weather that kept the Polar Star grounded for those two weeks also buried the airframe to the engine in drift snow, so the crew set to with the snow shovels, rigged the heating cowl and began the process of bringing the engine up to operating temperature. 
The flight demonstrated the engine and radios worked fine. Wilkins radioed the New York Times that the flight was about to kick off. And then the weather turned. Not only did this null the work put into getting the Polestar ready, sea ice began to threaten the Wyatt Earp. Another shift in the wind would put the ship on a lee shore with the pack to windward and a likely repeat of Nordenfeld's winter wait for salvation. Presently in the Zodiac Antares, off the coast of Tuhomek Island near the penguin colony at Palava Point. Sitting about 100 metres off Cobble Beach, watching avalanches come down. Back to Ellsworth. Ellsworth fell into another of his tetchy funks, as in a bad mood from which nothing could lift him, and not a groove of interlocking rhythmic drivers featuring an emphasis on the downbeat, and Bootsy Collins playing bass lines with syncopated eighth notes. And I don't know how he smelt at the time. A suggestion that Balkan and Ellsworth fly a circuit over the unseen areas of the Weddell Sea and its hinterland was rejected. Ellsworth wanted the big ticket or nothing. To get away from his funk, Wilkins and several of the Norwegians camped out on the island. After another week waiting for good weather and watching the sea ice like hawks, Ellsworth announced it was time to pull the pin. On New Year's Eve, Wilkins secretly radioed Isaiah Bowman to request funding to take over the expedition and to make the flight with Balkan, estimating a cost of $10,000 to buy out Ellsworth at that moment and carry on that year, if Ellsworth could be convinced to agree to give up the glory, which he couldn't, or $20,000 to carry forward in the following summer. I may never know what Bowman thought about this potential undermining of his friend, or of an Australian taking the place of an American he'd helped get briefed on how to best claim territory on the behalf of the USA, because before he responded, the weather cleared and Holmbo gave the go-ahead on the Weddell Sea side, and Haynes radioed in good news from the Ross Sea. The crew began digging the Polar Star out of the newly deposited drift snow, while Ellsworth pissed and moaned that they weren't working fast enough. On New Year's Day 1935, the Polar Star stood ready and warmed up, but the weather closed in again, visibility dropping to a few metres. No problem for a pilot able to fly and navigate on instruments, but useless in terms of making the flight anything other than a stunt. No visibility equals no observations equals might as well stop pretending you're flying for the sake of anything other than glory, and that would not do. Ellsworth ordered the Polar Star and the fuel brought back to the Wyatt Earp. It was time to leave. Three days the fog socked the island in and precluded hauling the drums back to the ship. The fog lifted in concert with a good weather report from Little America and Wilkins suggested Ellsworth and Balkan get airborne and give the flight a last minute go. With the Gamma's engine warming up over its stove and Balkan checking his flight plan, Ellsworth sent Richard Bird a message requesting permission to stay on at Little America for the winter after the Americans departed and asking if one of Bird's pilots and mechanics might be convinced to remain on station with him for a further program of flying the following summer. This last minute call on Bird's hospitality came out of the blue for everyone, but it resonates with Ellsworth's offhand comment to Marie Louise that he might not come home after completing his transcontinental flight. Bird, likely outraged at the idea of someone getting glory he felt rightfully his and using his base as their own, but outwardly polite because that's what a good Virginian boy is supposed to be at all times, radioed back that five of his Little America team volunteered to stay on if Ellsworth's flight reached the Bay of Wales, and agreed to instruct field teams to lay out clearly visible markers indicating the landing conditions and wind direction if the Polar Star appeared above their operation in order to facilitate a safe landing. The snow built up on Snow Hill Island in the weeks since they first arrived into a well, Snow Hill. Balkan taxied to the top of the hill, opened the throttle and built up speed over the undulating surface that was once his chosen flat expanse. The Gamma didn't build up speed quickly enough and he aborted the takeoff. He spent half an hour taxiing the Gamma to the top of the hill and trying again, 
but each time the gamma didn't gain enough speed to unstick. Reaching the hilltop once more, likely cranky at the ill-tempered self-loading ballast in the back seat, and frustrated to find himself dictated to by yet another control freak, Balkan turned the gamma away from the runway and onto the glacier leading down to the water, and opened the throttle. The steeper grade allowed the gamma to gain speed over ground quickly, but the tailwind this aspect gave them reduced the effective airspeed. Balkan needed to go even faster over the ground than usual to get the lift that would overcome the weight and prevent the whole shebang going into the sea and sinking with a disappointing glug-glug noise and two badly busted up corpses. It's so rare to read of Balkan doing anything impulsive that I really get a sense that Ellsworth made himself so unerringly annoying and pissy that the Norwegian flipped his shit. Either they would get airborne or they would die in a bloody mess, but either way, Balkan would get Lincoln Ellsworth to shut the fuck up. Those aboard the Wyatt Earp watched in horror as the Polar Star reached the edge of the island and hung, suspended in ground effect, just above the stalling speed of the heavily laden wings, remaining just above the water for a mile before Balkan had enough airspeed in hand to begin climbing. He circled the Polar Star back over the Wyatt Earp and departed south at 3,000 feet, high enough to manage an engine failure, but waiting until some fuel burnt off, reducing the all-up weight, before climbing to the lowest safe altitude required to tackle the mountain ranges ranged along their flight path. Wilkins got word away to the New York Times that the flight was underway. Balkan followed the Grahamland coast, and Ellsworth made notes about the features he observed. Then, Balkan turned the Polar Star north again, sighting poor weather ahead. Ellsworth couldn't see any sign of bad weather behind them, beyond a small squall, but unable to fly, even if the gamma featured dual controls, which it didn't, he was stuck with being angry, noisy ballast, as Balkan flew back to the White Earp and landed on Snow Hill Island two and a half hours after the dramatic takeoff. Ellsworth stomped from the aircraft as it came to a halt. Wilkins approached Balkan to ask what happened, and the Norwegian responded, Ellsworth can commit suicide if he likes, but he can't take me with him. Discussing the matter further with Wilkins later on, Balkan stated that without a third person, he felt unwilling to press on, unless 100% confident of a non-stop crossing. He didn't think Ellsworth strong enough, physically or mentally, to be of much use in digging the aircraft out of accumulated snow, and he couldn't ski at all. So if they ended up on the ice, the billionaire's weaknesses might lead to both men dying. A third person, Wilkins specifically, would have made the non-stop crossing less critical and added a competent navigator to the mix. The wind swung to the east, nixing any further attempts at the flight and pushing the pack ice against Snow Hill Island, making it hard for Captain Holf to manoeuvre the Wyatt Earp safely. It took four days for the sea to calm enough to allow the reloading of the Polar Star on deck, and the expedition immediately tried to head north, butting up against impenetrable pack. Ellsworth lashed out indiscriminately, burning what matchstick-thin bridges he might have still claimed with Balkan, and cited ugly motives as lying behind a suspected counterintelligence campaign that saw, Ellsworth thought, Little America feeding Balkan misleading information about weather conditions to give him an excuse to call the flight off. The crew, already well weary of his privileged boy antics, learnt to despise the whiny rich kid. With Ellsworth's antics turned up to 11, they really want a shot of the guy. Dynamite didn't help the ship make progress against the increasingly pressure-riven pack ice. Five days after they first got stuck, the wind shifted, but the ice only cleared out to their south. Captain Holf used the opportunity to backtrack to Snow Hill Island and anchor up on its sheltered western side. The ship held enough fiddles to see them ride through a winter, but Dr Holmbo was already overdue in his role as a Norwegian government employee, and Chris Bratton required medical attention for a stomach problem, likely to need surgery before the next austral summer. Wilkins radioed Captain Andrew Nelson aboard the Discovery 2 to request assistance getting Holmbo, Bratton and the increasingly unpleasant to deal with Ellsworth North if he could get Balkan to fly them to Deception Island in the Polar Star which would first require the float gear fitted to stick the landing in Whalers Bay. If the Discovery 2 could get the trio to South Georgia, 
Wilkins' contacts among the whaling stations in operation that year could arrange steerage berths back to civilization. Captain Nelson responded in the affirmative on the proviso that the pickup not disrupt his existing timetable. With Brighton not yet bedridden, nothing in the request constituted an emergency, so Wilkins had to get his men on site on time to take advantage of the Discovery 2's movements. With these tentative arrangements in place, the multi-stage plan became moot as a channel northward opened up and the Wyatt Earp steamed out of Antarctic Sound. Reaching Deception Island, Wilkins and the Norwegians found the Hector whaling station vandalised. Doors kicked in, windows smashed, the piano wrecked and faeces on the floor of the barrack room mess. The ship's crew used the station workshop to effect repairs to some of the Wyatt Earp's engine components and Wilkins made up a report to the Hectoria Whaling Company mapping the damage and laying the blame for same on members of the British Grahamland expedition, the only people known to have visited Deception Island in the two months since the Ellsworth expedition departed there. He also wrote to John Rymill to express his disappointment at the behaviour of the men in his charge. Wilkins highlighted the whalers' history of helping out explorers around the Antarctic Peninsula and that they usually asked for nothing other than ordinary consideration in return. He thought such high latitudes camaraderie unlikely to sustain if people trashed the materials and structures they came across. Rymel didn't contest the accusation that it was British Grahamland expedition personnel that did the damage, but he took umbrage at Wilkins' temerity for upbraiding him, writing the older and more experienced South Australian off as a gadfly explorer only in the game for the glory and the naming rights, where he was proper scientific and his motives and methods as pure as the driven snow. Because yeah, only people who go to Antarctica for exactly the same reasons as I do have any right to be there, and no one who isn't me is able to judge me for my actions. You'll hear in episodes about the British Graham Land Expedition how much I respect the people involved and what they achieved, but it doesn't matter how you cut it, Trashing the whaling station was wrong, and Rymill finding fault in Wilkins' mode as his rationalisation for not feeling bad about it, is one of the big sticking points on my path to holding him up as one of the best examples of polar leadership available to us. Yeah, I feel bad about that and have reprimanded those members of my team for such poor behaviour. Wouldn't be that hard for a grown-up to write down and mail to a fellow explorer, but Rymill couldn't pull off even that small loss of face. If you can't get the small stuff correct, I won't trust you with the big stuff. Like my life. No matter how much face you think you've got saved up. It's not face or honour that gets you on site or the data gathered and you can't eat it if things turn pear-shaped. Face isn't worth much in a food and fuel-based economy. Certainly the Norwegians among the Ellsworth expedition felt humiliated and affronted by the damage wrought on their countrymen's station. The one small relief being that the whaler's graveyard wasn't desecrated. The Wyatt Earp departed from Montevideo on the 21st of January. Ellsworth sulked in his cabin. The crew, sick of his ignorant and arrogant leadership and dismayed by the vandalism at Deception Island, kept similarly surly counsel. To cap the mood, rats that came aboard from the whaling station ate everything edible they could get at, including the ship's cat. As the exhausted and disillusioned crew approached their destination, Wilkins asked who felt willing to return south for another attempt the following austral summer. Sullen silence. No hands. Everyone wanted shot of Ellsworth, and Jeff Maynard's research throws a new angle on the matter for me. Besides being an asshole, Ellsworth's likely homosexuality was becoming a source of much gossip at home. Lady Wilkins wrote to Sir Hubert to rib him about his relationship with his boss, and it's possible the crew were receiving similar stick from home. These days, it's hard to contemplate, for anyone who isn't a small-minded bigot, that such rumours might see a person chuck a job. But in the 1930s, the societal pool of small-minded bigots measured far deeper per capita than now, and it's possible the rumours about Ellsworth played a role in turning the crew against him. But it sounds like he was enough of a dick, without prurient gossip needing to play a significant role in making people want to be somewhere other than on a ship with him. As soon as the Wyatt Earp tied up in Montevideo, Ellsworth, true to his last to join and first to leave form, got ashore, got across the river plate and flew back to the USA from Buenos Aires. 
he left written instructions for Wilkins to have everything ready for another attempt the following summer, including keeping Balkan on staff as pilot. Disgusted with Ellsworth and disappointed in Wilkins, Balkan wanted to shot at the expedition more than anyone else, and in spite of a proffered retainer of $300 US a month for the off-season, he sailed from Montevideo to California to report to the Northrop team on the performance of the Polar Star, and then on to Norway to see his wife and son, and where Hjalmar Risa Larsen wanted his help in establishing an airline, Det Norsk Luftfartselskap, on the behalf of five of their nation's largest shipping interests. While his influence in polar aviation for decades after this moment make it likely Burnt Balkan will receive further mentions in iced coffee, the Snowhill Island flights marked the final chapter in Burnt Balkan's direct association with Antarctica. The bulk of his career in aviation and in the Arctic still lay ahead of him. Carol V. Glein's biography, Burnt Balkan, Polar Aviator, is an excellent read and I recommend it to anyone with any interest in aviation or leadership under trying circumstances. I'll just round out the iced coffee coverage of Balkan for the moment by noting that his career in the United States Air Force never proceeded past Colonel in spite of his excellent leadership skills and incredible achievements on the behalf of the United States Army Air Force during the Second World War and the United States Air Force during the Cold War. Glines and other authors put responsibility for the short sheeting of his career on Admiral Richard Evelyn Byrd, whose animosity towards his former colleague ramped up year on year as Balkan went from one achievement to another, while Byrd's glory stagnated in the 1920s. Certainly Byrd had the venom and the political clout to shit-can a service career. In their final face-to-face meeting at an event celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Wright brothers' first flight at Kitty Hawk, Byrd went off on a long diatribe accusing Balkan of taking unwarranted credit for establishing Thule Air Base in Greenland, robbing Byrd of his rightful recognition. Balkan, who did actually spend years establishing Thule Air Base in Greenland, didn't know what to make of this claim or the threats Byrd made about using his access to President Eisenhower to do all manner of really bad things, really bad things, he won't believe the badness of these things, to Balkan's career. Byrd left the event more determined than ever to stomp down on the upstart he saw as getting too much publicity, and Balkan left it saddened at what became of a formerly good friend and respected colleague. Byrd continued to piss and moan about Balkan until he died, and his son, Richard III, continued dogging Balkan's days, forcing the pulping of Balkan's autobiography by rattling his lawyers hard enough that Balkan's publishers balked. People who know me personally and who listen to this series might understand now why Bernd Balkan has held my attention and respect for so long. He was exceptionally good at his job, and he held his head high in spite of someone trying their best to white ant him. In that episode, I recounted Sir Hubert Wilkins' disappointment at the state of the abandoned whaling station at Deception Island, and is blaming it on BGLE members who staged there with their dogs. I also stated that John Rymill blemished his record, in my eyes, by failing to respond to correspondence from Sir Hubert on that matter. John Rymill's son, Peter Rymill, and granddaughter, Sam Hickson, corresponded with me on the matter and I received extensive evidence demonstrating that John Rymill took the matter seriously and investigated as thoroughly as he could. The tranche of material Peter sent me included a report from Hampton to Rymill indicating the vandalism Wilkins cited was caused by the crew of the Discovery 2. Hampton acknowledged that he did leave a slops bucket in the accommodation block in a rushed departure, geared to avoid delaying the ship that was kind enough to collect them and that a dead dog left beneath an overturned wheelbarrow was one of his animals, but that the damage Wilkins reported to the Hectoria Whaling Company was caused by merchant sailors given time ashore and acting badly once out of their commander's jurisdiction. This shifts the problem off BGLE shoulders, but doesn't alter that the problem was problematic, 
and it's a dog act that Discovery 2 personnel treated the structures and resources with so little regard, both in terms of the rights of the owners and of possible utility to future sailors in need. I also reported John Rymill as taking pleasure in reporting Wilkins' alleged straits as not existing off the back of the upbraiding he received from Wilkins, but my subsequent reading of Southern Lights didn't turn up any such schadenfreudal skiting. I went off on a rant about people denigrating others' efforts in the South off the back of that sequence. And while that's no longer pertinent regarding Rymill and Wilkins, it remains an ongoing theme among past and present-day Antarcticans, and a form of sorority elitism I hold little patience with. The documentation Peter Rymill shared with me also demonstrated the BGLE received permission to use the resources left at Deception Island, so I've got no reason to hold any beef with John Rymill, and I eat my words running him down on all counts. John Rymill's descendants aren't the first people to take issue with my representation of their relative in this series, but they are the first to bring compelling evidence to the table that my representation was inaccurate, and I applaud them their patience and diligence in our correspondence.